Hello, and welcome to the Data Cloud Podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Torsten Grabs, Senior Director of Product Management at Snowflake. Before joining Snowflake six years ago, Torsten held management positions at Microsoft and Amazon and was also a lecturer on cloud databases at the University of Washington. In this episode, Torsten does a deep dive into the pros and cons of generative AI and talks about Snowflake's approach to data and AI, how to choose the right vendor, and so much more. So please enjoy this interview between Torsten Grabs and your host, Steve Hamm. How you approach data will define what's possible for your organization. Data engineers, data scientists, application developers, and a host of other data professionals who depend on the Snowflake Data Cloud continue to thrive thanks to a decade of technology breakthroughs, but that journey is only the beginning. Attend Snowflake Summit 2023 in Las Vegas, June 26th to 29th, to learn how to access, build, and monetize data, tools, models, and applications in ways that were previously unimaginable. Enable seamless alignment and collaboration across these crucial functions in the data cloud to transform nearly every aspect of your organization. Learn more and register at www.snowflake.com summit. Torsten, it's great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Now, since late last year, when OpenAI released GPT-3, its large language model, and ChatGPT, its AI chat agent for general use, large language models and generative AI have been all the rage, not just in the tech industry, but throughout society. What is going on here? And why is this approach to AI suddenly so popular? Yeah, I think I, I fully agree with the, the observations that you made. And I think it's a, probably a unique moment that we're experiencing all right now in, in the industry. And with, with the generative AI large language model technology, I think we, we actually are at a disruptive moment for the industry, um, for tech and for, for, for businesses. And the reason for that is that the way how people interact with computers now can suddenly change in dramatic ways and become much easier, much, much better, much more approachable for a lot of users. So previously, computers, human-computer interaction was pretty prescriptive on how humans had to interact with computers to get the results that they wanted. And now with generative AI and large language models, that is changing dramatically, that now you actually have an experience where you can engage in a much more conversational experience with a computer, with a system, and still get those results. And it's the, the conversational nature that is, is much more appropriate for a lot of users and also then allows a lot of different roles to do meaningful work with computers that previously were not necessarily able to accomplish that without help from someone who has more depth on the technology side. And I think it's that that opportunity that's really resonating with everyone right now. Yeah. Well, people have been talking to Siri for years. So what's so different about this? Yeah, I think the the, the it's a good question. The, 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 main, the main difference is the breadth of knowledge behind the the large language models, in particular the foundational ones, they, to a degree, encompass 
knowledge about the world that we expect from a system to have. And they're also able to reason with you over the course of a number of, let's say, sentences over a conversation where one step logically follows the other. And that context remains present for the chatbot or for the system that you're interacting with throughout that conversation. And that hasn't been necessarily the case with, with systems like Siri in the past. Yeah. You don't ask Siri follow-up questions that that, yeah. that it's informed by the previous exactly. question. That's yeah. right. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, computer scientists and data scientists have been using a variety of AI techniques for decades. And machine learning models have become an essential element of data management and data analytics. What's the difference between the more conventional machine learning and the modeling and the large language models that people are talking about and, and using today? Yeah, and I think the the main difference, again, is in how people are using the, these technologies. And uh, for the more traditional machine learning, you would, as an enterprise, as a company, as an organization, you would have a dedicated team in your organization that would help you create these machine learning models over your own proprietary data and then so tune them, optimize them for what your organization needs. And a lot of time was spent on that and resources in those teams typically were scarce. So you had bandwidth concerns where only a certain subset of the questions that you would like to get answered by machine learning technology, you were actually able to, to answer given the, given the resources that you had. Now that equation is shifting that the model creation part to a large extent is going to the vendors, to the providers of the foundational large language models. And that moves from the organization that has done data science previously and was in the business of creating models for the organization. That is shifting to an external entity, if you want, and then the organization itself just consumes the result of that, the, the, the foundational model, and then has to deal with prompt engineering to inject domain-specific knowledge into that or organizational knowledge right. or occupies itself with fine-tuning that, that large language model, right? So that the responsibilities are shifting here across organizational boundaries. And also, as part of that, over time, I expect that the role definition of job descriptions for data science teams in organizations will also change. They will shift away from creating machine learning models from scratch towards more consuming existing foundational models and then applying that, optimizing them for the specific purposes of that organization. Yeah. So they'll, they'll still be doing some machine modeling, but it'll kind of be on a lever level up from the large language models that they'll use provided by others. Is that the idea? That's that's right. So you essentially are you're you're yeah. consuming some sort of a pre-built, pre-baked model from either open source or from a commercial vendor. And a huge amount of compute resources goes into generating these these foundational models. Also, large amounts of data go into that as well, right? So compute consumption is spent by the external entity that's creating that model. It's no longer spent by the organization that creates these models, right? So now the organization consumes the result of that from the external entity and then applies typically a much smaller amount of compute, but maybe still a large amount of data for fine-tuning to that machine learning model to optimize it for, for, for that organization. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So there's a lot of insight that comes out of this, but there's also efficiency, both for the organizations, but also for society at large. I mean, if you're, it's it's like a public utility. These these large language models, right? In a way, yeah, almost. I mean, there's a there's a huge opportunity here for for everyone to just become much more effective, much more proficient when interacting with uh, with technology with with computers right so it becomes much much more approachable if you can write in natural language and engage in a conversation through natural language as compared to to previous ways how traditionally data science has uh, has been yeah. done right yeah now a lot of the attention and and what's really captured the popular imagination recently is chat gpt which you know you can you can pose a question to it, simple language. Uh, you could ask it to write you an essay. You know, I, there's concern about, you know, the high school and college kids doing this. You can talk to Dali about creating digital illustrations. It's just a lot of fun and interesting, but also kind of troublesome in some ways. But these seem kind of more like, I don't know, parlor tricks. I mean, and, and fun things. But how do those activities and capabilities fit in with, with hardcore kind of data analytics practiced by, by businesses and government? Yeah. So the, the, the first observation I'll make is that systems like ChatGPT have the yeah. opportunity to just make data practitioners much more proficient. They have essentially the means to accelerate the, the day-to-day work that data practitioners, for instance, put into writing code. So if I'm a data engineer writing a data pipeline, in SQL, there's a lot of uh, boilerplate code that once in a while I have to write. By leaning on generative AI, something like ChatGPT or other systems, I can get a lot of help writing that code. At least a first draft, let's say, of that code can be auto-generated. And then I can come in to make sure that the auto-generated code is actually oh. sound and I can make adjustments to fit it to the specific needs of my use case or my organization. Yeah. And that has the potential to reduce the amount of time that people have to spend to, to write a data pipeline from scratch dramatically. 80, 90%, I think, is, 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 is literally what, what I would expect if you look at systems like Copilot, for, for, for example, right? Right, right. Now... Up to now, my understanding is that large language models are are made by training systems using massive amounts of data, you know, the, the stuff available on the internet. It's not private data. So is proprietary data or other kinds of data, you know, kind of not out in the wild of the internet, is that being used already in large language models or will, will that the future? And if so, how do you do that? Yeah, I think that is the large untapped opportunity for large language models in the enterprise. Yeah. Right? As you correctly pointed out, these models are trained over publicly available data and that has made, made them reasonably powerful. But that doesn't give you the best performance, the best quality results, and the the most cost effectiveness for a given organization. For that, you would like to make sure that you can either fine-tune or train your large language model over your own proprietary data and make sure that all the data governance and privacy regulations that you that you have, that they are actually followed and honored by by the system, right? And that's a big challenge right now because 
a lot of these these systems are hosted as public endpoints on the cloud. So an organization that has sensitive data, they first need to understand what are the security, the privacy, the governance risks that they are entering into when they are sending sensitive data over the internet into an external system. So this is this is some something where organizations today should pay a lot of attention to what are the security and privacy promises by these systems. But then also for the industry, I think there is a lot of work left to actually bring the compute from those large language models closer to where the data sits and make sure that the data that you send into the large language models does not leave the security boundary of the organization or the organization. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I mean, I didn't realize that you actually had to send your data out into that public, you know, zone. I thought you could kind of, kind of, that the intermingling of these th things happened at a, at a kind of a more secure spot. Where, I mean, where do you see it? Where is it happening now? And, and where will it, where do you think it'll be? And I this mean, is, this is constantly it, changing. So the earlier, yeah. the earlier versions of large language models that were cloud hosted literally had provisions in the terms and conditions that said that everything that you send into the service, we will use to further train, to further optimize the large language model. And that obviously raises concerns with an enterprise that, hey, is there a risk for me that the data, sensitive data that I might have sent up into the system is used for training purposes? And then when someone else is using that machine learning model, that sensitive data could get disclosed to someone else, right? So that, that creates a lot of hesitation and enterprises have rightfully so pushed back on, on, on those terms and conditions. And since then already we have seen the industry move towards stricter guarantees around privacy, security, and data governance. But in the limit, you will only get the most security and privacy sensitive organizations to sign off on using large language models over their proprietary data when you as a vendor can actually demonstrate that that organization's data is not crossing the security perimeter of the organization. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. And that's that's the remaining work that the industry needs needs to do. But my understanding is that everybody is motivated to actually do that in the enterprise space. Good answer. I want to focus now on some Snowflake specific questions in the next part of the podcast. I know that Snowflake has put a lot of work into enabling data scientists to build applications using Python and JavaScript natively in the Snowflake data cloud, including some machine learning applications. I want to focus in on two key technologies, Snowpark, which is Snowflake's developer framework for securely hosting non-SQL business logic across various runtimes and libraries, and Streamlit, which was acquired by Snowflake and allows users to build data applications with just a few lines of code. These are key technologies, and they've come along in the past year or so to enable organizations to make powerful data applications available to regular business users. Is there a role for large language models in these technologies in Snowpark and Streamlit? There certainly is. Let's maybe start with, with the top level. If you think about an application that uses Streamlit to provide an approachable end-user experience, it is it is relatively straightforward to interact with cloud-hosted large language models or generative AI 
from within a Streamlit application. And there are various examples of that already in, in blog posts and in code samples on, on GitHub. So you, you can do that literally uh, today. And by doing that, you can actually create a conversational experience within a Streamlit application where in, in, in places you're interacting with a large language model that's uh, hosted elsewhere. Now, if you, if you then think about um, uh, Snowpark and, uh, and extensibility for your data stack, that's the place where you would think about hosting a, a, a tuned and optimized large language model that you throw at your proprietary data to extract additional intelligence from your proprietary data. So one example to just illustrate this is with our recent acquisition of Applica, we've started to look at unstructured data and how can we better cre create intelligence and value from unstructured data assets for organizations. And coincidentally, the technology that's being used by the Applica team is actually based on generative AI and large language models. So in that case, we are already applying large language models much, much further down in the stack against your unstructured data to derive that additional intelligence from the data, to make that your data more valuable when you put that into Snowflake. Interesting. So it sounds like Snowpark, you know, you know, we're talking a moment ago about governance and security and things like that. It sounds like Snowflake can be that place where sensitive data meets large language models. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I like the term uh, meeting place because I think what's meeting there is is your proprietary data with your own proprietary compute requirements, right? And you, you put that together in the different Snowpark runtimes that we offer, and they then run and execute within the security perimeter of your of your Snowflake account. And that's that's conceptually the model that also we want to follow for large language models. We want to bring those into the Snowpark runtimes to give you that same experience with the same governance and security promises that we uphold for Snowpark more generally. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm get, so I'm getting an idea, and hopefully it's correct, that so we have these a few large language models created by vendors who specialize in that. And then it's a, it sounds like corporations are going to be able to kind of bring together those models with their proprietary data. But is there also kind of another layer, e or either within corporations or organizations or separately with kind of like ISVs for applications that that use large language models and are kind of like maybe horizontal or something like that, or, or maybe domain specific. I'm, I'm kind of asking a big broad question here, but is there, is there yet another layer? Are there, are, are there applications and applications that could be put into the snowflake marketplace for sale and, and use in that way? Yeah. I definitely think that there's a, there's a spectrum and, and in this spectrum on one end you have the, foundational models, very general purpose. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have a highly proprietary model that you maybe fine tuned for one super specific use case, right? But in between, I think there we will see a whole array of different use cases and scenarios light up that are enabled by generative AI and large language models. And one expectation that I have is that we're going to see a, a, a lot of probably smaller large language models come out for domain-specific use cases that have been purpose-built for something like, let's say, predictive maintenance or other domains, maybe financial services, right? And those are great examples for the marketplace, right, where besides those foundational models, 
ISVs, technology partners, could offer those more domain-specific models and make it easy for customers to deploy those into their Snowflake accounts. Interesting. So they would be sometimes functional, organization functional, and sometimes, you know, by industry, by domain. Now, there are an, a number of vendors offering large language models as a cloud service. As, as a matter of fact, I think there is no other way to get, to get it but as a cloud service. What criteria would you advise organizations to use to choose among those vendors? I would certainly encourage folks to, particularly from the enterprise with sensitive data, to make sure that their data governance requirements and privacy requirements are satisfied with the services that they're interacting with. And that could mean that, for instance, they restrict which data assets can be sent into these services, right? So for which use cases do we allow these current services to, to, to be applied until maybe versions of that become available that cater better to enterprise governance and, secu and security and privacy requirements, right? So that's, that's one thing to, to check it. The other one is about price performance. So the, the, a key part there is, is the quality of the results that you're getting. And still, we're still, I would say, in the early days, you can actually see reasonable differences between these different large language models. Some work really well for text, others work really well for coding scenarios, others work really well for, let's see, unstructured data images, for example, right? So based on those use cases, figure out which ones are the right ones for you. And then also the vendors then have different cost profiles for you. Just I mean, thinking about our own use case with Applica for document intelligence, there's, there's one dimension that we very carefully watch, which is the quality of the results that we are producing. But the other one is how much compute are you burning to actually produce those, those results, right. right? And if you have a very, very large foundational model, it's very broad because it, it, it contains essentially knowledge of the world of the whole internet, that becomes very expensive to run if you already know that you have a very, very use case that you want to implement with that. So in those cases, it becomes more attractive maybe to settle on a smaller, more specialized model because it will help you to save some of that compute cost while still giving you the right quality of results. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. You know, uh, there's a lot of concern that this new wave of, of innovation in AI will result in agents and systems that are smarter than people. Uh, I think there's little doubt that, that <laughs> at this point that that will happen. And that could put a lot of people out of work and also potentially lead to some of these scenarios where the bots take over and stuff like that. You know, we, we've, I mean, this is, this is not idle speculation. I mean, Jeffrey Hinton, one of the pioneers of large language models, resigned from Google. He, he was their leading, you know, AI scientist. He resigned basically saying, hey, I'm so nervous about this. I've got to make a statement that this is, that there's danger here and I can't, I can't be part of it. What are your views on the risks here? And what do you think society, business, you know, all of the interested parties should do to kind of minimize the risk. I I would certainly say there there is risk. In particular, I think the biggest risk that I see is if you blindly trust the models to fully automate critical decisions for you, right? And in particular, for those use cases 
we want to make sure that we actually have human oversight in the loop, right? So we should use this as a tool to make people more productive, to accelerate the work. But we should be very careful about completely automating the human away. And I think that is in line also where the technology is at currently, right? You will find plenty of cases where you just get wrong answers that, that are either outdated or just factually yeah. wrong. And you don't want to make like business decisions based on, on, on that where you know there is the risk for just factually wrong results. So having someone with domain expertise in the loop here, making sure that this makes sense, that is, I think, the critical piece for us going forward. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like you should have humans involved in at least two spots. One is kind of like when you're talking about a new application or a new system, the, the business leaders who, who know what the business, what they want, how they want the business to run, both in its, you know, broad, broadly strategically, but also specifically, they have to shape these things. They have to, to tell, tell the, uh, the technologist, oh, this is what we want to accomplish with this. This is the, this is the shape of our business. And at the end, it seems like you really need some quality control people on the results, but also on the risks kind of stuff. It seems like it's almost like you're sandwiching these systems yeah. between the humans and there's, on, on the two ends. Does that make sense? And there's a cultural aspect to that as well, that you just yeah. establish a culture where you yeah. don't blindly dress, trust the system just because it it, it generates good results or, or great results in 80% of the cases. You, you, you have to make sure that in those 20% or 10% where it, it, it fails, that you're not falling down a very steep cliff. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. For your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. Really need to dig deep and get to know the real you. In the real up close and personal. So we're coming to the end of the podcast, and we typically end on a more personal or a lighter note. And you know, one of the things that I'm aware of is a lot of the early days of I mean even in the 1930s and 1940s, even as, as modern computer systems were just really being invented, already some of these science fiction writers were out there kind of imagining, well, where do, where do we go with this? How, well, how is society going to be, going to be affected by, by machine intelligence? And I'm just wondering, I mean, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of you, you tech guys were, were science fiction fans and maybe still are. Did you read a lot of sci-fi when you were a teenager? And, and did it kind of a, did it get you into technology or, or what's, what's your connective point I, there? I think I've read my fair, fair share of science fiction when I was younger. And I, I still enjoy watching Star Wars movies with the family. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've read, read probably every second book from Stanislav Lem. So a lot of some of those early ideas actually resonate with me, right? So that you now have the opportunity to interact with technology, with a system in those conversational ways. And that, that, that you can see already in those, those early days in science fiction, how did people interact with their spaceship, right? There, there was a machine that you could talk to and it was a meaningful conversation. And out of that came instructions to change course or land on this particular planet, right? And, and this becomes conceivable now. So we, we, we can build systems that provide a similar style of conversation when you interact with them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I know a lot of people remember 2001: Space Odyssey. Must have been, must have come out 
the movie it must have come out in like 1972. It had the the robot Hal, who took over the ship. So that's I think that kind of implanted the fear of robots. Some of the others, I mean, like I think Isaac Asimov talked about and wrote about robots really extensively, but not fearfully. But he did have I, he created rules, basic rules for robots, how to how they should be seen and controlled and kind of the de- a deal made between yeah. humans and the robots. So that was that was, I think that was really interesting. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of work going on on that front as well around things like, for instance, constitutional AI, where yeah. you provide these guardrails to to the system with the the clear intent to establish boundaries of what the system is allowed to do and what it is not allowed to do. Yeah. Yeah, I almost see it as like a, a new social contract between within society, but that really governs the relationship between humans and machines. And both sides need <laughs> need to have boundaries and guardrails, you know, because we know that it's the humans with malicious intent yeah. that make the machines dangerous. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that'll be <laughs> – we have to keep our eyes on them as well, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Torsten. I, I really enjoy talking to you. And it's really, what's really refreshing to me is that, you know, I, I read a lot of the articles in the popular press about these new capabilities. And very often they're, they're really focused on kind of like, you know, what are people doing with deep fakes or, you know, there's something that's kind of sexy. And, you, and it makes you wonder, well, is there really a business application? And I think you've really talked very kind of, deeply and credibly and convincingly about the ways that this stuff can be used by organizations to really transform the way they operate. So I think that's, it's been a great podcast for, for that reason. We are, we're on the, on the, on the verge of profound changes in society with technology driving them. So, so thanks very much for your time. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you so much for the conversation. Really enjoyed it. Are you interested in learning how to build on Snowflake? Join other developers, data engineers, and data architects at Snowflake's build.local event series. Roll up your sleeves and explore the possibilities of building on Snowflake with local, in-person, instructor-led workshops taking place across more than 30 global cities now. Learn more and register at www.snowflake.com build.local.